Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Would you guys pray with me? Um, then we'll dive into God's word. Lord Jesus, um, even just as we'll see in our text today, um, when things are different, your word is always the same. Um, when our world is different, when our church is different, when our health is different, um, there's a wonderful nearness, a confidence, and a comfort that comes when we understand all you have done for us in Jesus Christ. So we pray today that we are blessed as a body by what it is you've done in the gospel. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I have some friends who recently found out that their son has a really severe case of celiac. So as loving parents, they began to kind of craft a uh, strictly gluten-free diet and pantry. And I asked him what this was like, and he said, Um, It's weird because gluten is in so few things, and yet gluten is in everything. He says, it's not just token items like bread that have gluten in it. He says, you find out when you're really sensitive, gluten gets added to seasonings and sauces. It's in some medications. It's used to baste and preserve lunch meat, to thicken soups, and it's even found in a lot of, get this, gluten-free foods. And so this gluten is now this threat that he's keenly aware of that seems to be everywhere. He can't look anywhere and have confidence in anything his eyes sees. And it's led them to try to establish this unique relationship with the restaurants in their hometown where they have to talk to the cook and get to know what the kitchen is like and make sure they have separate utensils so they can actually have confidence that when they go there, their kid isn't going to have a flare-up and it's going to be harmful. He can't be certain of anything in his world. And what my friend experienced with the pervasive and seamless, seemingly omnipresent threat of gluten, Solomon is going to show us today the opposite of that when it comes to God's wisdom. In today's text, we're going to see that true wisdom, God's wisdom, is indeed in a few places, and at the same time, it's everywhere. It's difficult to find, and yet it's, every, it's in everything. And when we learn to see God's wisdom through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of God's plan to redeem us, then instead of, like my friend, having a lack of confidence in what we don't know, this astounding thing happens. When we begin to see God's wisdom in every ingredient of our life, we actually get an astounding confidence in knowing what God has done and what that means for our lives. We seem to get a sense of peace even when things are chaotic. My friend had a knowledge which led him to question anything for certain, And yet in Proverbs 3, which is where we are today, we see a profound knowledge that gives us confidence. In fact, it goes so as far far to say, the Lord's confidence in the face of uncertainty. We're continuing to work through the prologue of Proverbs, the first nine chapters of it, which is written as a father to a child. And coming up in a couple weeks, we're going to be introduced to the villain in this text, Lady Folly in her sultry, seductive song. But before we get there, this father wants us to know for certain how good and how wonderful wisdom is. The divine utility God has given us in understanding the world in his way. 
And so our main point today that we're going to see is this. We're to be in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 35, which is just read for us. And the big picture is this, is that God's wisdom revealed to us in Jesus is everything you've been looking for. What God has given to us in the knowledge of Jesus is everything you've been looking for in life. And we're going to see this in three ways. In verses 13 through 18, we're going to see that wisdom is infinitely precious. Verses 19 and 20, we're going to see that wisdom is foundationally supreme. And then in the latter part, verses 21 through 35, we're going to see by way of application that wisdom, when we find it, when we hold it fast, that wisdom is consistently comforting in all of life's hardships. So we're going to start, would you read with me, verses 13 through 18. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all of her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. And those who hold her fast are called blessed. So this passage, Proverbs 3, 18, or 13 through 18, is often called um, the Beatitudes of the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the New Testament, in Matthew 5, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with this list of traits that are called the Beatitudes. And it has a formula. Jesus says, blessed are blank. And then he gives a promise. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the righteous. And we live in a world where whenever we hear the term blessed, we're probably either perhaps to think of some sort of Catholic saint or shrine or some mystical religious experience, or we think of my GCF crew, some hashtag blessed, right? There it is right there, hashtag blessed. Um, And yet, we can't afford to just take a cultural understanding of blessing. We want to understand all of what God is talking about when he uses this word. In Hebrew, there are two words that are translated as blessed. One word gets at the source and the means from which blessing comes, and the other word gets at the experience of blessing. And this word is that experience word. This word is less after where it comes from, because that becomes implicit as we look at this, but it's after what your experience is. And the experience, the simple translation of this word is happy. Happy are you to have this wisdom. Happy are you to lay hold of this. We live in a world where experience is king. And generally speaking, what is true of some of us who claim to be Christian and most of us who do not claim to be Christian is when we find an experience that we think will satisfy us and bring us this blessedness, this happiness, we don't generally uh, think about how honorable or how pure the means are so long as we get that experience so long as that is what is at the end. And we look at all the things happening politically today, that's what's being offered. Who cares about the means if I get my result? But here, God's means produce the experience all of us want. Happiness. Here it is. Contentment for you to experience. And this is where we see our first point today. Wisdom is infinitely precious. And you'll notice there's this sandwich that happens in your text of blessing, right? Verse 13, it says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. And then verse 18 ends with the promise that those who hold her, that's lady wisdom, those who hold her fast are blessed. And then in between those two sandwiches, 
We see why it is that wisdom makes you blessed. Why is it that wisdom makes you happy? What is it that makes wisdom valuable? In verses 14 through 15, describe her value. How valuable is this wisdom that God offers? Well, it says the gain is better than silver. Her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. And then there's this astounding statement where Solomon says, nothing you desire compares to God's wisdom. Nothing you desire compares with her. We have seen the ridiculous things people do to get what they desire, don't we? If you look at game shows today, all game shows are is who's willing to do the most terrible, humiliating, and painful things to get the promise of a cash prize. Who is ready to be humiliated and hurt on national TV for just the promise of some sort of lump sum? Or we're captivated by it in our novels or our adventure movies to see how far a group of individuals will go to get the prize they deem worthy of value. And even if you look at the medals that are described here in Proverbs chapter 3, they're medals that take a lot of effort to get to. And in Job 28, Job is asking the question, where's wisdom? saying, where can you find it? And then he begins to describe the length at which people go to to extract these kind of metals from the earth. He says, the earth offers bread to you. Grain just pops up from the ground. It's there for your taking. And yet you, nincompoops, go down into the earth. You go down into the fire to try to harvest these and look at how he describes this quest and the effort put into it in Job 28, verses one through three. Surely there's a mine for silver, and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Or man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. And when you think of what you desire in life, what it is you are looking for that you think will make you blessed or happy, what cost will you go to to get that? What depths will you mine? What mountains will you move? What metals will you extract just to get that promise? Because here, God is offering something greater than what you can desire. Not what gold actually is, not what silver actually is, but even more than what you think it actually is. And it's offered to you by grace. Here it is. Come and have it. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. And that's the value of wisdom. You see, all of us, if we are searching for something in this world, something immaterial that we know is immaterial because we've sought for immaterial things and you've never found it, all of those things are meant to here turn you towards where God has put that experience of happiness, where he has placed his divine blessing, which is to come to God's grace offered in God's wisdom and to experience all that which your heart desires. And we need to understand how it fulfills us in this way and what makes wisdom valuable like this. Why is it better than anything we could ever dream up? Well, in verses 16 to 18, we see why it is valuable. Read with me. It says this. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all of her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. 
So we see a little bit of what we talked about last week in the introduction to chapter three, where long life and riches are offered here. And so wisdom is good to to bless us. It is good to generally benefit us, even though it's not always the case. We don't serve material blessings. We serve God. But God's wisdom generally leads us to safety and not to harm. And yet here I want to focus on two things that Solomon adds. Is one, all of the ways of this path, he says, are pleasantness. All of her steps are peace. There is some sort of contentment, some sort of satisfaction, some sort of pleasure that comes when you walk on this path. And why is that? What's the source of this pleasantness? Verse 18 tells us, she, that is wisdom, is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. So if you are familiar with scripture, you might be acquainted with this idea of the tree of life. Do you know it actually shows up three places in the Bible? First, it shows up in Genesis chapter two in the creation account. God creates Adam and Eve. He places them in a garden. And then in chapter two, verse nine, we see that he raised up every good tree in the garden. But in the middle, there were two trees. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And God looks at his creation, which was very good, and Adam and Eve, who were very good, and God was very pleased, and he gave them one command in the garden. We see this command in verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you want to know what a good warning is, that's a good warning. Everything is fair game. Don't touch the thing that kills you. We'd all say, that sounds great. I can accept those terms. Good stuff. And yet, that plan was twisted. God, do you realize God's design here? God's design was that humanity would eat from the tree of life and be in God's presence forever. But then the serpent came. And he said, God's holding out on you. God doesn't mean you'll surely die if you eat this. There's greater joy to eat this. And so they chose to not eat from the tree of life and to be satisfied eternally, but instead to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's where humanity fell. Adam and Eve were removed from the garden and it was guarded by a cherubim with a sword. They were separated from the tree of life and the presence of God. And this is where you and I come into the story. This is the world that we were born into. Separated from God, unable to access the tree which would provide us the life that we need. And as the Bible storyline continues... God tries to redeem what was lost. He tries to call people back to his presence, to his life, despite how knuckleheaded and how sinful and how rebellious we were until he sent finally, not a new plan, but a new person. Jesus Christ, who came, who was God's own son, who took on flesh to be a new Adam, where in Adam all sinned, in Christ, those who believe in him would live. Jesus came and he obeyed where Adam failed. And Jesus died on the cross so that those whose sin deserved death could have Jesus as a substitute so that you might have instead the life which Jesus always had. 
And then in Revelation 22, the Bible looks forward. In Genesis, it looks back. In the gospel, it looks back. And in Revelation 22, it looks forward to where God has solved and completed his plan to bring humanity back to a garden through the work of Jesus Christ. And in this garden, we see it is every experience you want. There is peace. There are no tears in our eyes. There is no weakness in our body. There is no systemic sin. There is no burden of hatred. There is no political controversy. Everyone gets along not because of any arbitrary reason, but because they are satisfied by the perfection of God himself. And look at what stands in the middle of this garden in Revelation 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. We see the tree of life at the beginning when everything went wrong. We see the tree of life at the end where Jesus fixes everything, and here in Proverbs we see the third instance of the tree of life. Why is this so important? Why out of all of the books is Proverbs here proclaiming the wonder of the tree? Because here we see that it's in God's wisdom that he begins to work to win creation back from what sin had broke. God's wisdom is not book smarts. God's wisdom is not street smarts. God's wisdom is realizing that God has worked through Jesus Christ to redeem all things on the cross to offer life and to deal with the problem of sin. Wisdom wins us back to God's original design for us through Jesus. And the truth is we need, you need, they need to be brought back to this tree. And it's only God's wisdom that does it. It's only God's plan that brings us back to where we need to be. And this is pervasive. This is the foundational understanding of how we understand God in Scripture. And this is what we see next in uh, Proverbs chapter 3. This is our second point, is that wisdom is foundationally supreme. Read with me two short verses, verses 19 through 20. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Do you guys remember the old commercials for cotton? Cotton, the fabric of our lives. In other words, cotton is just so ubiquitous in our world, they can just claim that everything ultimately has cotton in it. Well, here Solomon is saying that wisdom, God's wisdom, is the fabric of our lives. It is what is woven into creation. And you get in verses uh, 18 through 20, or 19 through 20, excuse me, you get this sense where it was by God's wisdom that it was created. By understanding, he established the world. But more than that, it is by God's wisdom that the world is sustained, that today, dew falls from heaven by his knowledge, by his understanding. You see, this is Christian worldview 101. God created us to view everything in our world 
through his wisdom. Why? Because it was created in his wisdom. It's the only way it was intended to be seen. It's the only way it should be seen. God established this world so that we might see him in it. Now remember, Solomon says at the beginning, he says, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord, we've kind of been saying, is this reverent reliance upon God. And so if we know what fear of the Lord is, we could work our way back to wisdom, and we could say this, wisdom then is reading our world through the eyes of God. It's seeing everything about how God has created this world through his eyes, through his plan, and through his intentions in Jesus. He becomes the lens through which we view everything. If you really want to understand how this world works, you must understand how God has worked in this world through the gospel. I heard one author say this where he used this illustration um, saying that, that we're all a bunch of miners underground working below the earth and God's wisdom is the light that shines on everything. Without it, we have nothing, but with it, we can see everything that God has called us to do. Scripture shows us how we were meant to live. It illuminates the world around us. Everything about our world is meant to bring us back to a reliance upon God and his wisdom. This book isn't just about how to be Christian. This book is about how to be human. This is what God designed us for. He has woven his plans to be with us into creation itself. And it's only through Jesus that we get brought back to this. That we got brought back to this right understanding. In grading, um, I helped grade theology papers for my old seminary. And one exam has this question on it where the student has to defend the uh, authority of the Bible to someone who says, why do we want to treat such an old book as our authority today? That's a good question. I wonder what your answer would be to that question. And they cite things like God's authority. If God is God, he says what he says, and we don't get to argue with it. They cite things like his sufficiency, and those are all really good answers. But I think Proverbs is actually holding up a more central and actually a more experiential answer for us. That is that God's wisdom can't become outdated because our problem and our solution remain the same. As humans, we've outgrown the earliest manuals on the internal combustion engine. We've put aside the means and metrics of medieval medicine. We've outgrown dial-up internet. We don't need those things anymore because we've solved their problems. We've moved on from them, but we have not outgrown the need for God's wisdom because we have not outgrown the problem of sin and death. Every tombstone you will ever see reminds us of a problem that no technology can beat, that no money can satisfy, that no sexual experience can prolong. But here, wisdom provides an answer. If we could solve the problem of the world through any other way, we don't need God's word, we don't need God's wisdom. But if this promise remains, if your heart is unsatisfied, if you feel the pain of this world, then you have a problem that nothing can fix except going back to the way God designed it to be. You see, here it's wisdom that's the fabric of creation. But look at how Paul writes in Colossians chapter one. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Skip down to verse 19. It says this, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This whole world, all of it, is meant to lead us to Jesus to restore us back to God. It's meant to reorient our eyes and our hearts on what sin has deadened and to bring us back. And so that means everything you encounter, every joy, every trial, Every pain and every pleasure reminds you of this twofold truth that this world is broken and sin rears its consequential head in our lives every day. But also that pleasure exists and Christ has come to win us back to God's joy, to God's very desire, to something greater than what you can even imagine. And this wisdom, this reliance upon God and a right view of Jesus is greater than anything. It is the end for which the world has created. It is life itself. So what do you do when it's offered to you in a book like this, in a person as good as Jesus? Well, Solomon tells us in verse 21, my son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. What do you do? You keep wisdom with discretion. Now, what does that mean? Proverbs uses this word a lot, discretion. It means that you begin to discern all of life through this lens. And this is where it gets into the heart of this text because the, the, the progression of the father in Proverbs 3 kind of goes like this. It says, if wisdom is this good, greater than anything you desire, if wisdom is this foundational, the very fabric on which creation was established, then wisdom should also be the foundation of your life, of your experiences, and of your hopes. So know it and don't forsake it. No matter what comes, cling to it. And here we see our third point today, that wisdom is consistently comforting. I'm going to read the remainder of what is left, and then we're going to circle back again to kind of dig into it. So we're going to begin in verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and there'll be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he's done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Towards the scorner, he is scornful. Towards the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but the fool gets 
disgrace. So I have a question for you this morning. Where are you most comfortable? I want you to take me to your comfy place. Where are you most satisfied? Where are you most protected, most confident? I was thinking, I was talking to my wife the other night about this. For me, after a long day, it's watching Netflix with my wife on the couch. Just like, that's good. It's comfortable, safe. I feel confident. But do you feel this general sense that God actually wants to offer you something similar, but better in his wisdom? Did you see all of the things? So here's God's word. Um, It's generally good for us to listen to it and to assume that what it's saying is true. But sometimes we think when we hear God's word um, that if it sounds too good to be true, God's just being hyperbolic. But do you hear what's being spoken of here? That this wisdom, her way is pleasant and peaceful. That to walk in her way is to walk securely. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. The Lord will be your confidence. The upright will dwell in his confidence. God blesses the righteous. He gives favor to the humble. And God himself honors the wise. That is an ecosystem of comfort. (laughs) That is all of the experiences that we want when we feel uncomfortable in this world. And yet despite how good all of this sounds, how wonderful this wisdom seems to be, this passage also assumes a general sense of opposition, doesn't it? It assumes that we won't always be comfortable, that the ecosystem outside of us won't always be silent, it won't always be warm, it won't always be safe. And yet in the midst of all of the things we cannot control, there is no promise in here that those are removed but instead there's a promise of your experience being different in it if you continue to cling to God's wisdom, if you continue to trust in him. You see, this world makes much noise to shake your confidence, to call you to another way, to another tree, to another joy. How many of us lie down and are afraid? How many of us are afraid of the state of politics, afraid of the health of our family, afraid of all of the things that seek to threaten us in this world? But here in walking in God's wisdom, the very things which cause us fear are also partnered with the very thing that gives us peace. God's wisdom to solve everything in Jesus Christ. To trust that God's plan to redeem us back to himself has been fulfilled in Christ. So we can have hope in what we don't know. I'm a person uh, who wrestles with anxiety, especially at night. Full disclosure, last night, the night before coming here, was a hard night. I had no idea what it was going to look like. I had no idea what homeless man was going to greet me outside my office. His name was Richard. He was quite vocal. I had no idea... What all we were going to forget? Like an offering bucket. I was anxious. I was nervous. And for me, I don't know about you, but 
nighttime is where I become the most anxious. And what generally happens is I turn into the world's greatest legalist. I begin to plan and to plot. I'm fully aware of all of the world's brokenness and all of its needs. And so I think that by my own works and by my own efforts, I can stay out in front of them. I can solve them, I can fix them. I can be Jesus to all those who need me to be. I could certainly tell you that the past 12 months of building funds, pandemics, and temporary shelters have not helped these nighttime plans. But last night, in God's grace, this was the text we're in today. And I began to preach this to myself. To say that those who cling to God's wisdom will lie down in peace and their sleep will be sweet. And what is he saying here? Is he saying that we're not going to have homeless Richard next to my office? Is he saying we're going to remember everything? No, it's saying that despite what's going on, if we are choosing to obey and follow God actively, then we can let God be sovereign ruler so we don't have to be. Because here's the truth. You're a lousy God. And so am I. But God's wisdom says that God is real. That God has acted to save us. That he has actually intervened in the state of our world for you. So that he could be your God and you get the pleasure of being his people. His sheep. His children. You see, when we begin to be anxious, we can assess, are we actively sinning? Pining away in anxiety at night? It might sound like I'm a problem solver, but it shows that I'm an idolater. And here God's wisdom says, if I'm not sinning, lay your head down and go to sleep. That didn't mean it was easy. That didn't mean I read this once like a magic incantation, but it meant that I got to wrestle with sin issues all night long and ask God to be gracious to me. You see, there's something that we often use in parenting that I think Paul Tripp or Ted Tripp, one of the Tripp brothers thought of this thing. Um, it's called the circle of safety and the circle of danger. As long as you're in the circle of safety, as long as you're obeying, you're here. You're safe. When we are choosing to walk in God's wisdom, we are standing in the circle of safety. Do not buy the, the threats that to remove yourself from that circle is safe. But to obey God is to stand securely in the midst of it. Look again at Proverbs 3, 25 through 26. Do not be afraid when sudden terror, of the sudden terror of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and he will keep your foot from being caught. Verse 32. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. So we sometimes think that our generation, our world, our political problems, our global economic issues are the most intense, the hardest, and the worst it's ever been. But we are not the first generation of people who fear the calamity of the wicked. We're not the first generation of evil who can see on some horizon a sudden terror and think that if I don't do something else, this is coming for me. If I don't take matters into my own hands, I'm nothing more but collateral damage. If this is where God is going, I'm going to choose to go somewhere else or to do something different. And yet here, 
in times like this, which is to say, in times when you find yourself to be a human on this earth broken by sin, God is not asking you to have confidence in yourself. God is not asking you to have confidence in your politicians. God is not asking you to have confidence in your health. Instead, did you see what God is offering you? His own confidence. God is inviting you into his confidence. To have that kind of security is profound. If wisdom leads us to obedience, then wisdom here in this text reminds us of the safety of those who reliantly obey. How safe? So safe that you could be confident with the Lord's confidence. The world might shake, tremors might move, mountains, hostility might turn up, blood might even flow, but those who choose to continually cling to this God and his gospel, you have the promise that you will not be caught up in this destruction, that you will not be collateral damage on the pages of history. Why? Because Jesus has made a way back to the tree. Jesus has given us eternal life. We can trust God and suffer no harm. And we know that even if terror strikes with deadly force in our flesh, we will have resurrected bodies. That what wisdom wins is so much better than what sin has broken. And when life gets hard, your active hope is to continually choose wisdom. Continually, over all things, choose to trust this God. Choose to obey. Choose to please him. And if you do this, these profound promises, which seem too good to be true, will be counted to you. Do you have this hope? And just as Solomon did last week, he gives you a little test. Okay, You think you have this hope. You think you have the confidence of the Lord. Let's check it. Look at what he shows next. Here's the test of this, verses 27 through 32. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he's done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. So what does it look like to trust God in all things? What does it look like to see our world through the lens of God's wisdom? It looks like honoring your neighbor. Isn't that an odd thing? for him to include here. Here we have the wisdom which upholds the fabric of the world and those who cling to this, they're gonna give that cup of flour in the afternoon when your neighbor asks for it. You see, there's a unique witness that is exclusive to Christianity and here's why, and here's why this is put in here. Everyone in this world is looking for what is good. They are looking for that treasure. They are descending, they are mining, they are pining for goodness. And at this point, what we've seen in Proverbs 3 is that you, God's people, have it. You have seen what God has done to win you back to the tree of life. You have what the world is looking for. So share it. And yes, that means evangelize. Do that. 
But it also means when your neighbor comes to you and you have something and you are able to do it that you should not withhold it from them. And here, when it says the word good, that if your neighbor asks you for something and you should give it to them, what it's really saying is if you have something of a benefit to your neighbor, don't withhold it. So I wonder what that is for you. I wonder what it is that in the gospel God has graciously given to you that you ought not withhold from your neighbor. And maybe there's a slew of material things. But what about immaterial things? Could it be grace for the coworker who's constantly struggling to pull their weight? Could it be a kind word and a winsome witness to a neighbor with a different political sign in their lawn? Could it be a sense of encouragement to those who seem downhearted? Because the truth is, we withhold things as a defense mechanism. We withhold things because we think we need them, and if we give them, we won't get them back. But if God has given us all of this, then we can trust that God will provide, and we need not disobey to avoid that. We don't need the world's defenses anymore. And more than that, Proverbs shows this. Here's this really profound thing, okay? In the mind of Solomon, it is no small step to go from one who does not give to the one who asks to taking from your neighbor. Look at, look at, how, he, look at how he butts these up in verses 27 through 32. Or 26, excuse me. Uh, do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I'll give it to you when you have it. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Right there. If you're not one who's going to give, chances are you're probably going to be someone who takes. Because this world, apart from God's goodness provided for us in wisdom, makes commodities of us all. We want to keep what's ours because we think it satisfies. And if someone has something that, that seems to satisfy them, we want it and we'll take it from them no matter the cost. We'll turn them into tools for our own pleasure or objects of leverage for our own righteousness. But here God has given to us freely in the gospel. Look at verses 13 through 14 again. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. God has given us in the gospel everything we need to have confidence and comfort so that we can do the uncomfortable things of obeying even when things are hard, even when it seems like we're losing, even when it seems that anger or violence might vindicate us when withdrawing and retreating might satisfy us, God says, do not neglect trusting me. Because look at the promises which come. Verses 33 through 35. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Towards the scorner he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Don't we want to trust in God's wisdom? Don't we want these experiences? Then trust that even when our world responds differently or when the climate around us says otherwise, that we will suffer no harm in choosing to trust in God's wisdom through Jesus Christ.
in choosing to pursue obedience in a way that honors God and is a blessing to those around us. See, God's confidence gives us clarity when life is tumultuous and also gives us clarity when it seems that serving others and obeying God is dangerous. But here we've been given all things so that we as God's church might do what he's called us to do, to share with others the joy that we have found. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you help us to do the simple things this text holds up. Lord, so far through three chapters of Proverbs, the paradigm is simple. Wisdom is super duper. You should do it. And Lord, our hearts distrust your word. To see all of these blessings is one thing, but to actually wrap our lives around it is something which only God can do in our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that because we are indwelt not by a dead word, but by a living and abiding word through faith in Jesus Christ, that we would choose to trust this promise in every area of our lives, that we would experience pleasantness, which surpasses understanding because our world is wildly unpleasant. That we would choose to love even when it seems dangerous. That we choose to obey even when it seems counterintuitive because we want more than we could ever desire in Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen.